Pray with me, please. Let's ask the Lord to be with us. Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I thank you, my Father, for your written word. I thank you, my Father, for it is life-giving. And it brings to our attention the things about Jesus that we need to know. And my Father, I pray, I pray in the name of your only begotten Son that you would be with us now, Father, that you would anoint not only the speaking of your word, but that you would anoint the hearing of your word, Father. We submit to you, we bow down to you that you would be our teacher, that we would be your students, your disciples. Father God, come. Come with the Son and the Spirit. Come. We give ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. As wonderful as the gospel reading was today, I'm, I'm not going to be preaching from the gospel. Uh, I'm actually not going to be directing you too much to different passages of Scripture today, but I do want to encourage you to have perhaps your bulletin handy. Uh, and also inside of your bulletin, there is a sheet uh, where you can take uh, notes because you may want to take some notes today as, as we do each Sunday. But uh, especially when I don't go to Scripture or go to the, um, to the insert where the lessons are, are read. Throughout this uh, month of August, uh, I have been doing a series of sermons on what we believe what we believe, and especially using uh, the Nicene Creed. We have, di I've divided the Nicene Creed into, into certain uh, portions so that we know what we believe and so that when we recite the Creed, we know exactly what it is that we are saying. It is, it is imperative that that we don't say the creed in a rote manner where we don't pay attention to what it is we're saying. We, we should always pay attention to everything in the liturgy because it's all pointing us to the scriptures. Now, I'm not going to go too much into last week's sermon. I just want to encourage you, those of you that would like to know more and see what I preached and what I presented, uh, to you last week, but last week um, I want to encourage you to go to the website uh, if you are interested, but last week we dealt with the first portion of the Nicene Creed. We dealt with that portion that dealt with God the Father, and um, we read, and I explain each of these passages here or each of these words, but uh, we read uh, that we believe 
in one God, who is the Father, who is the Almighty, and who is the maker of heaven and earth and of all that is, both the visible and the invisible world. Nothing that has life, even if it doesn't have life like the earth and matter, it is all created by God. And so I dealt with each of these things that we say we believe about God the Father. Today, I want to lead you as best I can through the second portion of the Nicene Creed. The second portion of the Nicene Creed, it's all a reference uh, to who Jesus is. It deals with Jesus. However, because it is the longest portion of the Nicene Creed, I've chosen to subdivide that into two different sections. The first portion of the section that deals with who Jesus is, is what I called the portion that has to do with the being and the divinity of Jesus. The being and the divinity of Jesus. The second portion of the Nicene Creed that deals with Jesus has more to do with his humanity, perhaps, uh, but it's mostly with his ministry here on earth. What he came to do, what he did, and his second coming. So I've divided that portion that has to do with Jesus into two. His being, his divinity, and then next week I'm going to deal with the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to deal with this portion that says that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. That's the section that I would like to deal with today. Now, the, the first thing that I need you to understand is what prompted this section of the Nicene Creed. The first thing you need to notice when you compare the Nicene Creed with the Apostles' Creed is that this section is much more elaborated. It's longer. Uh, it, it gives us more as to who Jesus is, not only as to who he is, but his relationship with the Father. This section is, is longer. The, the Apostles' Creed probably was the, the one creed that was used as a baptism creed, a statement of faith, probably through the first and second century. Anyone that was being baptized uh, in the name of Jesus with water would have to proclaim, this is what we believe. That was the Apostles' Creed. But I, I want to teach you a little more. First of all, I need you to understand that, number one, Jesus didn't leave behind any written books or any written materials. And so the faith that we have is the faith that the apostles wrote. And so there's a lot of things that Jesus taught that were pretty much left unexplained. 
it was the, the, the church's work as it developed, as it grew, as it matured, as the necessities came about, the church had to explain what is it that we believe. For example, at the Last Supper, Jesus simply said he broke bread and he blessed it. He broke bread. He gave it to the disciples and he said, this is my body. And then he took a cup of, of wine and he blessed it and gave it to the disciples and said, this is my blood. But, I, but he didn't talk about what that all meant. He didn't really explain what does it mean. All we know is that we are to repeat this, but how is this your body? How is this your blood? A lot of things were left unexplained. The early church, one of the first struggles of the early church was how to preach Messiah crucified. God is not supposed to die. God is not supposed to die hanging from a cross. How do you explain to Gentiles that have all these super mythological gods that our God dies? How do you preach faith on a God that seems to have failed? How do you preach salvation through a God that dies? Where is his strength? Where is his mightiness? Where is the idea that God comes with all the armies of heaven and sets the whole world aright? Where is that? How do we preach a God that dies? It's left really to Paul to theologize and to bring together the idea that Jesus is indeed God, but he is the Lamb of God that actually comes in two different journeys. The first journey or the first coming is to die for the salvation of all, to pay for the sins of the world, to take upon himself all of the sins of the world and to pay the penalty, the price, the redemptive price for salvation. But he's coming a second time. And this second time, he's not coming to die again. This time, he's coming to conquer. And so all of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus are sort of divided into these two, these, these two comings. But a lot of it is still left unexplained. And only when we look back at it, we're going to say, ah, we should have known that. But we didn't. So there's a lot of things that are left unexplained in Scripture. And uh, the other thing I want you to understand is that in the early times of the church, the church had enemies. And some of the enemies were from outside. Like the Jews persecuted the Christians all, all the time. But so did the Greeks. And so did the Romans. I mean, Christianity was perhaps one of the most persecuted church in the, in the first century by all of these different groups. But some of the problems of the church were not just external. Some of them were internal. There were people in the church that 
that began to teach things that were not fully in accordance with Scripture. Let me give you a couple of explanations. Number one, there was the son of a pastor, I believe, whose name was Marcion. And Marcion started preaching and started selecting which Gospels he was going to accept and which Gospels he wasn't going to accept. I think he rejected Matthew. He probably only kept John. And he got rid of most of the letters of Paul, and he kept just one thing here, one thing there. But he became the judge of the Scriptures, and he created his own little canon of Scripture, and he began to teach it wherever there were Christians because he had a little bit of Christianity here and a little bit of Christianity here, and then he created his own canon of Scripture and rejected everything else. In doing that, he was denying the full revelation of God, and he became the decider of what is God's revelation and what is not. And he was the son of a Christian pastor. Eventually... In the church, there was developed uh, something that, that was clearly a heresy, and it was condemned as a heresy, I believe, in the second century. And it was something that was termed moralism. Moralism was a first attempt in dealing with the Trinity, but moralism basically taught that God changes modes. That one moment he is the father, and the next time he's the son, and the next time he's the spirit. But it's the same God who just changes modes according to the required need. And that was immediately condemned as a heresy because that makes God a God that changes. And uh, it was condemned as a heresy. Eventually, and this is really what I want to get to, eventually in North Africa, in the city of Alexandria, there was a pastor, there was a priest of the church, of the Christian church, by the name of Arius. Arius, and, and I have to tell you that heresies sometimes, heresies don't, sometimes don't just happen on purpose. You know, it's not that he set out to be evil. It's not that he set out uh, to confuse the church. But as he was teaching this man named Arius, he so wanted to protect the unity of God against moralism so much wanted to protect the unity of God, kind of following Origen, one of the early church fathers who himself had some, some stuff he taught that wasn't quite kosher. But, but he, he's orthodox, but not totally, not 100%. And Arius comes along, and, and in order to protect the unity of God against moralism, he totally ignores the rest of the revelation of God and divides and separates and confuses the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And so he begins to teach his congregation in Alexandria, 
and all of the city pretty much of Alexandria where he's the pastor, he begins to teach him that if God is one, then Jesus is a created being. That there was a time that Jesus was not. That Jesus was created and made. Yes, he's your savior. He's a son of God. He's all these things. But he was just created and there was a time when Jesus did not exist. Now, one of the things about Arius, Jim, I think you'll enjoy this. But Arius was a musician. A good musician. And he created a jingle. Like the jingles that we sometimes hear on television when a, a product and they create a catchy jingle and every time you sing it, you remember the produce, the product. Well, he created a jingle. And the jingle was catchy and the tune was catchy. And the jingle may have gone something like this. There was a time when Jesus was not. Jesus is not God. He, there was a time he didn't exist, but in a nice tune, but with a jingle, and his congregation started singing it, and the children started singing it, and eventually the people of Alexandria started singing it, and it was being spread, this thing that Jesus was a created being, and there was a time he was not, because he's not God. God is this other unity that is undivided. His bishop, whose name was Alexander, comes and corrects him. His bishop tells him, stop. This is not scripture. This is not, and, and they look at John. John clearly puts Jesus and presents Jesus as the Son of God and as God. As I explained to my Muslim friend the day that I had the conversation recently, all through John, Jesus is presented as God from John 1, 1, all the way to the end of John and everything in between. Every I am saying of Jesus is about him being God and using the tetragrammaton for himself. The bishop tells Arius to stop. But this is the thing with heretics. They don't listen to authority. He felt so strongly that he was right and his bishop was wrong that he just kept at it. And when the bishop kicked him out of his role as the pastor of the church in Alexandria, he began to write to other bishops in other places and collected some people that began to support him. The other thing I want you to understand is that the emperor at the time is Constantine. There's actually two emperors, one in Rome and then Constantine kind of outside of Rome. It was one of those times when there were two emperors uh, uh, in the Roman Empire. And Constantine decides that he's going to come and challenge the Roman emperor. And he wants to become the sole emperor, as was Caesar Augustus, as were some of the other emperors. And as he comes, and just before he crosses, I believe it was the Danube, uh, he's going to have a major battle against this other emperor. 
And during that night, he has a vision. And in the vision, he sees the X and the R in Greek, you know, the, the Christus Rex, the Cairo, in a, in a cross, and he hears a voice that says, under this symbol, conquer. When he wakes up in the morning, he tells all his soldiers to put a cross on their shields, to put a cross in their breastplates, to put a cross in their helmets, which confuses all his soldiers. Because, I mean, there's been persecution against these Christians all along, and all of a sudden they're being asked to put crosses in their, in their weapons and in their uniforms. But they go ahead and do it. And they go and do the battle, and they win. And he becomes the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. One of the key things that Constantine wants to do is he wants to keep peace in the empire. He doesn't want anything to divide it. Well, he's kind of become a Christian after he saw that vision, after he saw God acting his life, and he became emperor, and he becomes a Christian, and he can't have the church divided. He cannot have declared that the church now is a valid religion and have the church divided. So that's when he calls the Council of Nicaea in a place called Nicaea in 325. And all these bishops from all over the world, those that can come, I think over 600 or so were invited. Only about 300 and some actually came after the persecution. Some of them came limping. Some of them came missing an eye. Some of them came missing a hand. Some of them came just injured from the tremendous persecutions that they experienced prior to Constantine. I mean, these were the heroes of the faith and they were coming to defend and bring unity to the church because of the teaching of Arius that now has spread beyond Alexandria to pretty much most of the Christian uh, churches and most of the Christian uh, areas around the world. And they come to Nicaea to debate this idea as to whether Jesus is God or not. Arius presents his case and they all open scripture, and they begin to discuss the scriptures, and it is actually left to a young deacon, a young deacon, he hadn't been ordained too long before, a man named Athanasius. And Athanasius is the one that verbalizes a system by which we can understand the fullness of the revelation of God. Without ignoring that God is one, as the Shema says, the Hebrew creed statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. God has to remain one, and yet there is a clear division between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, so that Jesus, when he prays, he's not praying to himself. There's clearly three different persons, and yet the Gospels, all of the Gospels, including the letters of Paul, declare that Jesus is God. So how do we then understand 
that there is one God, but you have these three individuals, these three different persons who are also God and declared to be God and taught to be God in the Holy Scriptures. Athanasius is the one that introduces what is now known as the Trinity. What Athanasius says is that God, who is without form, God doesn't have arms and head and legs or anything. God is God that covers everything. He is God. And within the Godhead, within that that we call God, that that is divine, that that is the source of all creation, that that is almighty in every way, within God there are these three individuals, persons, who are called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Within that economy of who God is, there is the hierarchy of Father, Son, and Spirit. But clearly the Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Son nor the Father. This kind of, this image shows you kind of what Athanasius presented as the only possible solution to the full revelation of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the Trinity. God is one in essence, in substance, in divinity, and within what God is, these three individuals share all of the same essence, all of the same qualities, all of the same attributes, all of the same divinity. Within God, there is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. For us, outside of the, of the Godhead, all three are one and the same. We believe in one God. But within the Godhead, the three exist. And Athanasius comes up with that idea, and I'm not going to bore you with all the, uh, the different Greek names and all of that, but the church eventually decides that that is the only way of understanding the full revelation of God in both the Old and the New Testament without denying any portion of it, without confusing any part of it, and without dividing the person's uh, or dividing God into three gods. It's the only way to not end up with three gods is to believe that God is one. And within that oneness, there are three individual persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It does away with moralism because it remains the three different persons, and yet it covers the Shema well in that God continues to be one and is the only one without denying the divinity of Jesus or the divinity of the Spirit. And he comes up with this and it becomes what we have today in the Nicene Creed. God is one in essence. Sometimes to, to help me say it in, in human terms, God is one in DNA. I, it's, it's a bad analogy, but it works for me. They all share the same DNA, but it is one, one God. One God that shares divinity, 
and shares everything that one is, the others are. But within them, there is a hierarchy of Father, Son, and Spirit. The, the fact that we have a Son of God means that we have the Father of God. You cannot have a Son without the Father. And the same thing with, with the Spirit. Now, let me tackle quickly, or let me tackle the best I can, the Nicene Creed, that portion that I told you about. First of all, we begin with the words we believe. And as I told you last week, we believe declares that here we stand. This is our faith at the exclusion of every other faith. This is what we believe. Nothing different, nothing less, nothing more. This is our faith. When we say each Sunday, we believe in one God, it excludes all other gods. When we say we believe in one Lord Jesus, it excludes every other person or God or Lord to whom we bow down. We believe. We believe together. We stand together. This is our faith. The second thing that I, I want to share with you is, it says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. One Lord. The title Lord has connotations of deity in it. Throughout the Old Testament, God is referred we know the name of God that was given to Moses was my name is Yahweh. Tell them that God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent to you. I am that I am. That's the name Yahweh. But the commandment also said that they were to be careful to keep the name of God holy and reverent. So in order to avoid using the name Yahweh too much and making a mistake and breaking the commandment, they put together some of the vowels of Yahweh and they created the name Adonai. Adonai means Lord without having to say the tetragrammaton. Lord. So all throughout the Old Testament, God is known as the Lord, the Lord our God. All through the Old Testament, the God of Israel is the Lord. When we come to the New Testament, we refer to God as our Father, and Jesus is the one declared as the Lord. But when we say Lord Jesus, we are equating him with the Lord God of the Old Testament. To title Jesus as our Lord is to say you are the Lord that was and is and will always be. So when we say that we believe in one Lord, we are not saying that the Father is not the Lord. We are also not saying that the Spirit is not the Lord. We are saying that we believe in one God that is the Lord and Jesus is the incarnate member of that trinity that we call the Lord. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Lord. We believe in one Lord. In fact, we can read it in, in um, 
In 1 Corinthians it says, Yes, for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians it says that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There is one Lord, and we say we believe in one Lord. There is one that we bow down to. There is one who is our general. There is one that is our God. There is one that is our CEO. There is one to whom we give all attention and all obedience and all worship. There is one Jesus Christ that we call our Lord. We say that in the creed. We believe, we stand in this faith that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. The second thing I, I think very important for you to understand is that word begotten. It actually is three times is found in the creed. We say that we believe in the only begotten Son of God. And it also says that we believe that He is the eternally begotten of the Father. And we also say that He's begotten, not made. Three times do we find this word begotten. The word begotten can be used in different ways in Scripture. Most of the time, begotten means to give birth to, right? Like this parent begot this person. I mean, in the genealogies, we read all these begotten words. But begotten also means produce from, not just giving birth to, like giving life to something, but to produce something out of something, to produce, to release and when it is use of Jesus, the concept that we find, for example, let me read a few passages to you from John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1:18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus is referred to in the New Testament, especially in John, as the begotten of the Father. Let me give you another quick explanation, because it makes a lot of sense to me. I was sharing the gospel with some friends one time that were Jehovah Witnesses, and they had a lot of questions for me. By the way, the new Arians today, the Jehovah Witnesses. Arius never went away. He just kept messing with the faith all through his life and even beyond his life, even until today, Jehovah Witnesses are the Arians of today. Okay, they're still denying the divinity of Jesus. But so do Muslims, because that was part of my conversation with my friend. They cannot accept the divinity of Jesus. They're willing to say that he's the son of God, but he's certainly not divine. They don't understand the Trinity. But I was talking to these friends of mine, and they were asking me questions because they were very interesting, interested in knowing what I believed. And one of the things that it occurred to me was that to explain to them, if you have here an eternal flame, 
an eternal flame, a flame that has no beginning, no end. It's a flame. And you take, for example, a candle, and you light the candle from that flame, and now you bring it out. That light was always inside that light. You understand? That light did not start by itself as if you lit it with a match. That would be a different light. But if you light it from the eternal light, that light was always there. Now it has become incarnate, which is how I think of Jesus. Jesus becomes the light of light. He becomes the light that was always inside God. He becomes incarnate and is separate. But he was always eternally in God, and it is from God that he's produced, that he's generated, not by birth as if he was studying something new, but rather he came from the Father, he was begotten of the Father, and that's how the scriptures present him. So we say that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. There is no other. There's not a second son. There's not a third son. There are no other begotten but the Son of God. He's the only one that came from the Father, will return to the Father, and is part of the one God. The other thing is that we are told in Scripture and we proclaim is that he is the eternal begotten son. He has no beginning. Arius is wrong. It's a heresy. Jesus has no beginning. He always existed in the Father, and he came from the Father and became man. But he always was with the Father. He's eternally the begotten, produced, came from the source, which is the Father. And the other thing that we say is that he is not, he is begotten, not made. Those three statements were extremely important to be declared at Nicaea. That Jesus is the begotten, the only begotten, the eternal begotten, and not made. Not like everything else. Let there be light, and there was light. Jesus was not like that. Jesus was always preexistent, eternal with the Father. So we say we believe in Jesus who is our Lord, the only begotten Son of God. And then these statements are made. He is God from God. Not made. God from God. Light from light. True God from the true and only God. Jesus is everything that the Father is. Everything that is God, everything that is divine, everything that is almighty, everything that one is, the others are, because they're part of the one God. Light from light. True God from true God. The Arians might have accepted most of this until this statement was made of the same being as the Father. Jesus is of the same being as the Father. Same substance. Same everything that made the Father God, Jesus is in every respect. Jesus is from the same being as the Father. 
the church had the necessity to clarify what it believed. It was necessary if they were going to explain it to an unbelieving world. And it was necessary for the unity of the church that there be one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one God and Father of all. And sometimes these councils did a great job of explaining what the faith actually was because it wasn't expelled out before. As I said before, Arius didn't stop. Arius kept going. Sometimes he was up. Sometimes he was down. Athanasius was persecuted. Athanasius came back to, uh, to power. Uh, but today, today we still have Arians teaching heresy in our world. And it is imperative that you believers, we believers, know where we stand. And we say we believe. We stand in this faith. This is biblical faith. This is the triune faith of the church. And all others are excluded from this faith. So that is what you and I claim that we believe. Somebody at 8 o'clock said, Father Jose, I don't know how you did all of this in the time that you took, but this is, and again, if you have questions, if you want to talk to me about it, if you have additional questions, if you, uh, any, you need further explanations, I'll be happy to sit down with you and deal with this. But you need to know where you stand, and you need to know what you believe. So now I'm going to invite you to stand, please, and let us proclaim together the faith of the church. This is where we stand. This is our faith at the exclusion of all other teachings.